For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So I think when we start a book like this, it's important for us to do a little introduction. One of the things about the book of Psalms is that we're talking about a different genre in the Bible, and some of the stuff that we read can be a little bit confusing if we don't have some understanding about how to read these Psalms. I think, first of all, the Hebrew word for Psalms means praise songs, and what we see is that typically you'll have these notes at the beginning of these Psalms that tell you that there's an accompaniment for music. Often though, there's a mention of a choir director, and the Psalms were meant to be sung as part of the liturgical service in the worship at the temple. Now, the word psalms actually comes from the Greek translation, psalmoi, meaning a song sung of in, to instrumental accompaniment. So, these psalms were meant to be memorized. They were meant to be, you know, catchy musical um, or songs that, that people would remember and um, that people could reflect on throughout the day. Now, the purpose of the Psalms, I think, first of all, it shows us how to relate to God. One of the things you're going to encounter as you study through the Psalms is that the psalmists provide really a rich and diverse uh, way of describing how to relate to God. These are personal prayers that the authors have written down for our benefit. Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria, says most of the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms actually speak for us. I don't know if you have read much literature. One of the things that's really interesting and valuable about reading fiction, for example, is that if you have a skilled writer, the writer often knows how to depict somebody's inner dialogue in a way that really resonates with you. And a lot of times... The author is describing thoughts that this character is having that you start to realize, wait, I've had those same experiences, and so it sort of broadens your ability to speak about how you feel. And in the same way, when we read through the Psalms and we see the psalmist relating to God, it gives us sort of a spiritual vocabulary to be able to identify the thoughts and feelings that we have but also express them clearly to God. Also, it teaches us how to praise and thank God. In our modern culture, we live in a society of complaint where we are encouraged to complain, we're encouraged to focus in on the negative. And one of the things that God teaches us is that if we want to be happy, if we want to have a fulfilling life, Focusing in on the things that God has given to us and acknowledging it through thanksgiving is very important. Now, this concept of praise is a little bit different than thanksgiving. When you are engaging in gratitude, you're thanking God for something He's done. When you engage in praise, you're thanking God for who He is. You're acknowledging His character and you're extolling the virtues of who He is. So the Psalms contain lots of praise 
And it teaches us how to praise God in a deeper way. Also, the Psalms encourage us to relate honestly with God. I don't know if you've ever read all the way through the Psalms, but some of the things that the psalmists say are almost like, I cannot believe that he just said that to God. It it, it almost borders on the irreverent. For example, you see that the psalmists express shame over things that they've done. And they do so in a very just raw and honest way. Sometimes the psalmists express anger. Sometimes toward God or toward other people. Look at Psalm 109, verse 9 and 10, where the psalmist says, May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. I mean, that's hard for us to to imagine praying to God for somebody else's demise. But you think about people who have experienced horrific tragedy and injustice in their lives, and they have this outcry for justice that they feel that they express to God. Also, you see that the psalmist will express sorrow. Psalm 6, verse 6, gives us this vivid picture where he says, I'm worn out from groaning. All night long I fled my be- flood my bed with weeping and drenched my couch with tears. I mean, we've, we've probably been in that situation before where we have just been so overwhelmed with grief that we found ourselves sobbing into the night, falling asleep in that condition. Sometimes the psalmist will express incredible doubt. Psalm 73, verse 3 through 5, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggle. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. Have you ever felt that way? You're trying to live your life for God and it seems like barrier after barrier come into your life or you know you just encounter tough circumstances yet you look at people who don't care about God or acknowledge him at all and, and yet it seems their lives are going perfectly fine and you start to wonder you you start to do a little bit of calculus am i wasting my time am i putting all of my effort into this what's it all for So you see that there is really this richness of emotion that's expressed in the Psalms that I think we can learn from. Honestly, I think that our, at least if you're like me, your tendency is probably to withhold how you really feel toward God. You experience tragedy. You experience difficulty in your life. You have struggles. And instead of going honestly to God with your problems and how you feel, you bottle it up. Or you feel afraid to be able to express that to God. But God says that he wants you to talk to him honestly about how you feel. And the reason we can say this is because he gives us examples in the Psalms of how there are other people who really grappled with their faith and were able to just be honest with God about how they felt. Also, they show us how to affirm what is actually true. Even though God says, I want you to be honest with me about your feelings, I want you to pour out your heart to me, tell me all of the thoughts that are running through your mind, because honestly, I already know what's in your head. Nothing is hidden from my sight. 
that eventually God wants us to get to a place where we are acknowledging His truth. That we get to a place where we are wrestling with the negative thoughts that are entering our minds, these negative emotions that are swirling around in our heads, but that we finally get to a point where we are able to, to grasp on to God's truth. You know, today we live in a culture where our culture tells us that the only reliable thing that you can look to for a guide in your life are your feelings and your desires. Because after all, when you look at ultimate reality, it's only made up of natural things, matter. So no one culture can tell another how they should live their lives or what things we should really value. In fact, our own culture can't really reliably tell us what we should believe or what values we should possess. The only thing that we can reliably look upon is our, ourselves, our drives, how we feel. And yet when you look at most people's lives, you have to admit, I wonder if that's the best way to go about living life. You look at so many people out in our culture today who are unhappy. Many different studies have been published recently that show a decline in American happiness, even though today people are wealthier than they were even 50 years ago. People possess more and have more comfort now than they did 50 years ago. We know way more now than we did 50 years ago. And yet, when you look at our lives, we are a tremendously unhappy culture. So maybe we need to rethink that. Maybe what we need to do is we need to look outside of ourselves and anchor our beliefs in something that's objective, not subjective. Now, I want to turn to Psalm 1, one of my favorite psalms, which I entitled Two Ways. One of the things that's really interesting about this psalm and is actually somewhat provocative is the fact that you see that the psalmist really lays out two polarities, that there's only two ways, that when you look at and look at the world, in reality, there's one way which includes seeing the world through supernatural eyes and one where you only see things through a naturalistic grid. According to the Bible, there are two ways that we can live our lives. We can enter either through the narrow gate, which leads to life, or we can enter through the broad gate, which leads to destruction. The Bible also talks about two different types of kingdoms, that there is the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of God's enemy, the evil one. And when we look at our culture today, this thesis-antithesis is very troubling. We like to sort of blur things up. Things are not that easy. Things are a little bit more complicated than that. And yet, we see that there are these two stark approaches to living life. The psalmist says in Psalm 1, verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So, you see that, first of all, there is this stair-step progression that 
The blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor do they stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You see that there's this progression where when the wicked person starts to cozy up to moral wrongdoing and a life that's, that's apart from God, that over time that actually hardens into a lifestyle, a propensity to look at the world without acknowledging God and who He is. Um, <clears throat> he says, too, that um, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, that word blessed actually literally means happy. The Greek translation of this passage uses the, the Greek word makarios for blessed. That's the same word that Jesus uses in John 13 when he says, blessed are you if you do these things in regard to serving people. So one of the things that we see is that Psalms gives us an outline for how to live a life of happiness and fulfillment. Some authors have described Psalm 1 as sort of the vestibule through which people enter into the Psalms and that it pronounces a blessing upon those who begin their journey through the Psalms. Now, he says that the person who's blessed, first of all, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And what this describes is that the person who is blessed, the person who acknowledges God and lives for God, doesn't take her cues from the world and what it has to say. You know, you look out into the world today and there are a variety of different philosophies and views and thoughts about how to make your life better. The wise person doesn't look at society and our culture to, to gain a sense of where she should place her values. Instead, she looks at what God has to say. Also, the blessed person doesn't stand in the path of sinners. Now, this sounds like you're blocking the way of sinners or something like that. It doesn't make any sense. But in the New English translation, it renders this clause, or stand in the pathway of sinners, with sinners. In other words, one of the things that you'll see of a blessed person is that they don't immerse themselves with those who are apart from God, and they don't take their cues from what people have to say in our world. Also, they don't sit in the seat of scoffers. The blessed person isn't one of those cynical scoffers who sneers and scoffs at people. Instead, um, they're people who possess a fairly optimistic view of life because they recognize that God is involved, and that he's sovereign. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and, his law is, and in his law he meditates day and night. Um, now this word for the law of the Lord is the word Torah. And a lot of times when we think of the law, we just think of the Old Testament law, like the Ten Commandments. But it's actually a little bit more broad than this. Torah could actually mean direction or instruction. So 
it could include an individual command, but it also could be broadly describing the full counsel of God. So what the psalmist has in mind here is the person, the blessed person, delights in God's instruction. They delight in Scripture. This word delight is actually really interesting because when we think of delighting in something, we think of enjoying it. But this is actually a little bit stronger. In some contexts, this word delight actually describes the strong attraction that a man has for a woman. We're told in Genesis 34, verse 19, Shechem is uh, described as having delight in Jacob's daughter, Dina. So we're talking about that intoxicating love that you sometimes feel. You know, when, when you're attracted to somebody, sometimes you find yourself fixating on that individual. Every time you have a spare moment, your, your thoughts seem to drift toward this person. You know, if you're dating them, you're, you're waiting for them to text you. And get kind of creepy, right? <laughs> a little bit maddening. Um, I remember hearing this story where three women were hanging out till about 2 a.m. And they were joking around. They're like, you know, let's see which one of our boyfriends is the most committed to us. <laughs> and so they sent out, all three of them sent out identical text messages to all of their boyfriends at 2 a.m. saying, hey, could you do me a big favor? Could you go to the store and get me uh, cookie dough ice cream and some lady products? The first guy replied, you're kidding, right? The second one didn't even reply at all. Ten minutes later, the third guy shows up at the door like a sad puppy dog. <laughs> you know, when you think about delighting in someone, you know, it can be engrossing. You, you find that your, your mind just naturally drifts in that direction. And so that's kind of the strong attraction and love that God is sort of describing when he says that we delight in the law of the Lord, that when we see that there are seams within our day, our, our mind naturally gravitates toward what God has said. And this would have been even more powerful in their context because back then they didn't have paper copies of the Bible. This was prior to the printing press, and so many Jewish boys would memorize large portions of Scripture. So as they were out carrying out their duties or working, they were constantly mulling over and thinking about the things of God. Also, he says that the blessed person meditates day and night upon God's instruction. And so you see that there is this preoccupation with God's word and his instruction. When we think of meditation today, we think of the Eastern concept of meditation where you sort of empty out your mind. And the whole concept behind that is, is that you're trying to reach enlightenment in the Buddhist way of thinking. And it's really a way to relax yourself and to center yourself. But contrary to this, the biblical view of meditation is very different. 
Unlike the Eastern view, which is contentless, the biblical view is contentful. What you're doing is you're, you're taking a snippet from God's Word, something that really resonates with you, and you're thinking about it. You're sort of extracting the meaning from it slowly over, over time. This word to meditate actually means to utter, to mutter, to meditate, to devise, to plot. You know, when you're, when you're walking around and you see somebody sort of muttering to themselves, what are they doing? You know, one of two things. They're either talking to somebody on their AirPods, right? Or they're, they're, they're ruminating, they're, they're muttering because they're, they're preoccupied with something. And so that's the same sort of thing that God says when we meditate day and night is that we are, we're, we're turning and rolling something over in our minds because we're thinking about it and that really the, the, the content of that is God's word. He says in verse 3 that the blessed person will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and its leaves do not wither and in whatever he does, this person prospers. I love this imagery. The psalmist gives us something that would be very familiar to anyone reading this, something that's relatable. We've all seen a river or a stream of water that's lined with, with trees, and it gives you this picture in your mind of what it means to be rooted in God's Word. It's interesting, he says that it yields its fruit in season. And this implies to us that there are seasons in life. That there are times of drought. There are times of difficulty. There are difficult circumstances that come into our lives. Seasons of unfruitfulness for those of us who are interested in Christian work. And yet, he says that even though we may go through these seasons... Um, that we, we still yield fruit. And, you know, when we talk about yielding fruit in season, we're talking primarily of character change. You know, one of the main ways that God bears fruit in your life is that He transforms you. So many of us are coming from a background where we've done things that have damaged ourselves or we have created patterns of relating with others that have, have damaged our relationships. We, we have developed addictions that have enslaved us. And these things have plagued us in some cases for many years or decades. And what God intends to do in our lives as we grow spiritually is He wants to change our character. He wants to take those character flaws and He wants to, to fix those. And, you know, he doesn't want to do this in a superficial way. You think about how people sometimes change. And honestly, when you look at it, it's a lot of behavior modification. That it's willing yourself to stop doing something by taking, you know, these external measures to stop that behavior. But one of the things that God wants to do is that he wants to transform our thinking. A lot of things that we do are based on values that we possess, misguided drives or desires that are out of control. And what God wants to do is He wants to actually change and transform our thinking 
which then starts to impact our behavior. You see, the biblical model of change is not about us trying to change the external by sheer force of will, but instead, God intends to change us from the inside out as He transforms our thinking, as He helps us to see that His values are the kind of values we should live for. And so as we adopt those, we start to see that we, are, we start to live a different way. In addition to that, he's talking about fruitful service to God. Some of you may have come out of a Christian background, and you might be thinking to yourself, I don't know what the, the hype is around Christianity. I mean, I've done that. It was boring. There's nothing there for me. I'll tell you what, one of the most exhilarating things about living the Christian life is taking a step of faith and trying to serve God. Whether that be trying to encourage somebody who's struggling in Christian community. Or maybe even taking a step of faith and sharing your faith with somebody who doesn't know God. That can reinvigorate your faith in a way that nothing else can. And for those of us who have adopted this as a way of life, serving God, one of the things that you're going to encounter are times or seasons of drought or times and seasons of unfruitfulness. And it's really easy, I think, during those times to come to a place of personal crisis. I've been there before where things are going really, really well serving God. It seems like whenever you put a little bit of effort, God uses that and you see these immediate results. But then there are these periods where it seems like you're putting a whole bunch of effort into serving God, and it's equating to nothing. And you start to wonder, am I wasting my time? Or maybe, maybe we're misguided in our direction. You start to question things. And yet when that season passes and we move more toward a fruitful season, we start to see in retrospect what God was doing. That God was actually using that to transform our character to teach us patience, to show us that the main objective of following God is loving Him, not using serving Him as another way to boost our ego. And he says that we'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. I'll have to admit, I love trees. <laughs> I love looking at trees. I love learning about trees. I like burning trees. <laughs> you know, when I'm on walks, I might see a tree. I won't hug the tree, but, you know, I might wrap my arms around it to just get a little feel of what it's like. <laughs> and one of the things that you'll notice is that trees that are healthy usually have a water source that is, that is connected to it, constantly bringing nourishment to it. And so what the psalmist tells us is that if we meditate and if we fixate, if we, if we really hold on to the Word of God, we become like a tree that's firmly planted by streams of water. And he says, in whatever this person does, they prosper. This is not to suggest that you're going to be successful in all that you do if you decide to follow God and live based on what He has to say in His written Word. But that ultimately, when you look at the body of your life, 
that for the most part, God has given you a happy and fulfilling life, even though you've experienced ups and downs. And even during those times, the Bible tells us it's possible to experience tremendous joy and fulfillment. That there's a sense of hope that, you know, even though we're going through a hard time, God can actually use that in His sovereignty for your good and for others' good as well. And for those of us who have persevered through suffering, we can attest to you that that's true. It's real. Now the psalmist moves on to the antithesis. He says in verse 4 in emphatic language, not so the wicked. And if you look at the Hebrew, this is positioned in a way that the, the, the psalmist is really trying to show you that this is serious, that, you know, in contrast to the blessed person who meditates day and night on the Word of God, not so the wicked. You know, the one who is blessed is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, not so the wicked. That the blessed person delights in the law of the Lord, not so the wicked. Instead, they're like chaff which the wind drives away. To us, as modern readers, this imagery is lost upon us. But in the ancient world, whenever you would gather wheat, you would create a threshing floor, which is a flat surface, usually raised. And you would take all of your wheat and you would lay it onto the threshing floor and you'd get an ox to trample the wheat. And what it would do is it would separate this filmy husk from the wheat inside. And then on a windy day, what the farmer would do is he would take his winnowing fork and he would toss both the chaff and the wheat into the air. And when a strong wind blew, it would blow the chaff out to the side of the hill and then the wheat would fall to the ground because it was heavier. And that's the way that they would separate the wheat from the chaff. And he says that the chaff are like the wicked, that they are separate, lifeless. He says in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Again, the psalmist uses pretty strong words here. He says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In other words, they will not be able to come before God and account for the things that they've done because they have not acknowledged God in their hearts. Also, they will not sit in the assembly of the righteous. They will not be a part of God's people. He also says in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, Which in other translations puts it, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, that his eye is ever upon those whom he loves. But he says, the way of the wicked will perish. Not only would those people perish as a result of their wrongdoing, but their way will perish as well. So someone like Adolf Hitler will pay for what he did, but God will judge fascism as well. Pol Pot will be judged for the the millions that he had slaughtered in Cambodia, but God will also judge communism as a system. And so 
we see that there is really this stark picture, this polarization that we see in Psalm 1 that makes us as modern readers a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know if you're grasping the weight of this like I am. I mean, it's very difficult to read this. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked because when you look at yourself, you start to realize, look, we're sort of a mixed bag, right? And yet, according to Psalm 1, there are really only two paths. There is the the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There's no third way. And again, this can be very troubling for us. We live in a culture where we acknowledge that even though there are really good people out there, they have their moral imperfections. And when you think about people who do really, really bad things, that hasn't taken away completely their capability to do some good things. And so how can we make these pronouncements about people? Doesn't the Bible seem a little too black and white, a little bit too narrow in its pronouncement of people? You know, is it realistic to see people this way? I mean, after all, when you look at some of the biblical characters, like you think about Moses, for example. Moses was a man of faith, and yet he was also a murderer. And at the end of his life, even though he was really, really faithful to God, he misrepresented God in an act of anger toward the the nation of Israel, and God decided to bar him from entering into the promised land as a result of that. Take the example of David, a man after God's own heart. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a crappy father. And yet, he did a lot of amazing things. Think about the Apostle Peter. It's amazing to look at how quickly he vacillated while he was following Jesus. You know, on the one hand, he was pronouncing that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, and yet minutes later was rebuking Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross, which was his main mission. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. And then you think about after the day of Pentecost when Peter leads 3,000 people to meet Christ. Sometime later, he's caught up in hypocrisy where he's unwilling to eat with the non-Jewish people because he's afraid of how the Jewish Christians would judge him. So when you look at the biblical narrative and you, and you read about these biblical characters, you see that they're morally ambiguous, right? I mean, there's a lot of good things about them, but there's a lot of bad stuff too. And really, you can look in your own heart and see the same sort of thing if you're honest with yourself. So what do we do with Psalm 1? What are we to make of this? I think, first of all, we have to understand that the Bible is filled with many different literary genres, okay? And one of the things that we have to do when we read the Psalms We need to understand that Hebrew poetry, as well as Hebrew wisdom, tend to really cast things in polarities. That there's a thesis and antithesis. That there are the righteous and there are the wicked. There are the fools and there are the wise. And yet when we look to other aspects, other genres in the Bible, like narrative, we do see that ambiguity. For example, you think about Samson. 
He was incredible in the way that he was able to defeat the Philistines. Even his last act, right before he died, he was able to accomplish things for God. And yet, throughout his life, he did a lot of things that violated God's law. And yet, what we see is that the author of Judges never makes a moral pronouncement upon Samson because it was just understood that what he was doing was wrong. And so when we look at the Psalms, a lot of times there is this polarity that we need to understand as we read them. Secondly, we should be aware of our own cultural baggage when we read the Bible. When we think about things in in our world, again, we like that moral ambiguity. We don't like to slap labels on people. Because after all, it's complex, right? You know, we're more comfortable with moral ambiguity than I think a lot of people were in the ancient world. Think about one of the most popular TV series in all of television history, Breaking Bad, right? I mean, it's a classic story of an anti-hero. You have Walter White, who is a chemist, uh, uh, you know, in a high, sc- a high school ke- chemistry teacher, and he gets diagnosed with cancer, and he doesn't have money, and so he decides that he's going to take his knowledge of chemistry, and he's going to start cooking up meth. And it's weird as, as one of the viewers t- to watch Walter White. On the one hand, you're sort of rooting for him, but then you're like, oh my gosh, he's doing a lot of really messed up things, right? And, and so... You know, at the beginning, you're like, I'm a little bit sympathetic to him. He seems like a really nice guy. And then after a while, you're like, wow, he's really pushing the envelope on killing people and cooking up all this meth. And then at the end, you're just like, oh my gosh, this is a terrible person. And we love that, right? <laughs> we, lo- we love the ambiguity. I-, I was thinking about how there's that one scene where he has one of the drug dealers who's chained up in the basement. He's about to kill him. Uh, or at least he doesn't know what to do with him. And so he's feeding him and he's making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he carefully cuts the crust off the edges as he's preparing food for this guy. And you think to yourself, this is, this is really what our culture thrives upon, right? You know, on the one hand, he's about to probably kill this guy, but at the same time, he wants to make this guy a nice little lunch. And you know, when our culture looks at that, we think that's really good. That's interesting. And yet when the Bible looks at that, it assesses it for what it really is. is It's a sign of the lostness and fallenness of our world. You know, we live in a pluralistic culture where religious and moral relativism predominates. Where when you cast things in these stark contrasts or when you... Look at the Bible and it provides thesis, antithesis. It makes us feel uncomfortable because we like that moral ambiguity. And yet maybe the reason why we like the moral ambiguity is because it justifies our own moral wrongdoing. Because we see in these characters the same sort of flaws we see in ourselves. And you know, I think we live at a time now where to suggest that there's only two ways is very offensive to people. People don't like that. People want to acknowledge that whatever way you affirm, that's what matters. 
Because after all, who knows what the truth is? And yet God says just the opposite of that. He says there are two ways whether you want to acknowledge them or not. You know, Jesus utilized this polarized language. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's, it, people are like, okay, I don't know. Some of this language in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, I mean, it kind of grates against me because it's like you have to either choose this way or the other way, the righteous or the wicked. But I like Jesus. You know, he was all about love and mercy, and, you know, he had lambs that he was always carrying around that were really cute. He was a nice guy, right? And yet, when you look at Jesus, he says there's the narrow gate and the wide gate. The narrow gate leads to life, and the wide gate leads to destruction. And you know, as a modern reader, you're like, is there a mid-sized gate, like another kind of gate? You know, he says that there's the good tree that bears good fruit. And he says that good trees don't bear bad fruit. And then there are bad trees that bear bad fruit. And those bad trees do not bear good fruit. I mean, he says it in explicit terms. Also, he says at the end there, to summarize the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the person who lives based on my word, it's like somebody who builds their house on a rock when the storms come and the winds come. It's unmoved. But the person who does not build their lives upon my word are like an individual who builds their house upon the sand. When the winds and the storms come, it's swept away. Jesus used this kind of stark language that we see in Psalm 1. So I guess it raises this question, what, what is God trying to do when he uses this kind of polarized language? I think, first of all, he's trying to show us that there are, um, are really only two paths in life, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. And the thing that we need to understand is that when God talks about the righteous, he's not talking about the person who is morally righteous. He's talking about the person who God views as having a right standing before him. The Bible is explicit. There's really nothing that you can do to earn your way to God. That it's only by throwing yourself upon his mercy and humbling yourself that we can receive this standing before him. But if we refuse to acknowledge him, if we decide that we're going to go our own way, if we decide that we are going to try to earn our own righteousness through either the things that we do or to try to justify our own existence by creating our own sense of identity by the things that we do, God says that that road leads to destruction. Secondly, God gives us an absolute ideal of righteousness to remind us that we'll never meet his perfect standard. That's one of the reasons why when, when he casts things in these stark ways, He's trying to remind us that we all fall short of this righteous standard that he is describing. God's not going to water things down to accommodate our moral failings because he's perfect. You know, Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian novelist, was very interesting because he was a religious man. And throughout his life, he wanted to earn and live a righteous life. At one point, he decided that he was going to 
wear peasant clothes, and he had these strict rules that he put together, that he wasn't going to smoke, he wasn't going to drink, he wasn't going to eat meat, and he was going to work the land. And he, he tried his best to be as righteous as he possibly could be. At one point, he decided publicly that he was going to become celibate. And so he created two rooms, one for him and his wife. And 16 children later, he decided that he, was, he probably wasn't going to be able to carry through with it. At one point, he was so depressed and so um, just distraught about his moral failing that he actually told his servants to hide all the guns, the ropes, and the knives in the house. And so Tolstoy tried to live the righteous life that Christ described, and he failed miserably. He says this, the test of our observance of Christ's teaching is our consciousness of our failure to attain an ideal perfection. The degree to which we draw near to this perfection cannot be seen. All we can see is the extent of our deviation. The reason why God gives us this absolute picture of righteousness is because He wants us to see that we are not righteous. The reason he gives us the Old Testament law, which contains 613 laws, is to overwhelm us and to show us there's nothing you can do to ever earn my favor. Philip Yancey, commenting on this, says, Tolstoy was the first author for me who accomplished the most difficult of tasks to make good as believable and appealing as evil. You see what he's saying here? This pursuit of righteousness, goodness, apart from God, is maddening. It's impossible. And that's the reason why God offers another way. The way of grace. The way of righteousness that includes us coming to Him and admitting, there's nothing I can do to earn my way to you. And I need your forgiveness. And luckily, God in His mercy and love has provided a way for us to experience that forgiveness, namely through Jesus Christ. And so, what is the main characteristic of righteousness? Well, it's not about being a really, really good person and trying to earn your way to God. The answer is, it's the person who lives their lives rooted and nourished by God's written word. Somebody who recognizes that what God says is the true guide to life. And so let's try to bring this down to something more practical, especially when it comes to understanding and rooting ourselves in God's Word. You know, first of all, if you're starting off reading the Bible, you should be selective in what you read, okay? If you're trying to develop a taste for the Bible, my suggestion is stay away from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and maybe Ezekiel, okay? I mean, tackle that when you, when you get a little bit more biblical understanding. My suggestion is read through the Gospel of John. You know, whenever somebody asks me, where do you think I should start in the Bible? I say, start with the Gospel of John. And as you start to understand more about God's plan from that context, then you can branch out into the Old Testament and into other New Testament books. 
But I think we should resist this, this tendency to try to read the Bible as if it was a novel from, you know, the front to back. Secondly, quality over quantity. You know, try to take a small segment, read it, and understand it. That's way better than reading like four or five chapters and not understanding what the hell you just read, okay? And so it's all about trying to connect with God and having a quality uh, time with Him. Also, minimize distractions, you know? I try to turn my phone off, um, try to, you know, uh, turn off my tech, and I just, I just try to spend time with God. And inevitably, my mind wanders, and so what I do is, I, you know, I put a piece of paper in front of me, and I'll just jot down these thoughts as they enter my mind. Pay the mortgage, okay. <laughs> Grab the laundry from the dryer. You know, just all these crazy thoughts that enter my mind, I just jot it down and move on, try to minimize distractions. And finally, make time for this. If you want to grow with God, if you want to be like that tree that's firmly planted by streams of water, then you're going to have to spend time doing this. You're going to have to carve out time. And you might be like, well, I'm really, really busy. And what I would say to you is, you make time for the things that are really important, right? I mean, most of us, we wouldn't leave the house without brushing our teeth, right? Most of us. Um, you know, most of us make time for showers. Most of us make time to eat. And so we make time for the things that we prioritize. And so if we value and prioritize God's word and connecting with him, we're going to carve out time for that as well. Lord, I know that um, studying this passage, it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. These two sort of contrasting categories of the righteous and the wicked. And uh, I find myself identifying more so with the wicked, at least in uh, terms of the things that I do, but grateful that you give me a right standing and others a right standing based on what your son Jesus did. And it's not something that we have to earn, but it's something that you freely give to us. And um, I pray that we can become people who... Um, Learn to love and delight in your word. You know, we live at a time now where uh, many people believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And I think people wonder whether or not anything they hear is actually true anymore. And so I pray that, um, you know, we can cling on to something that is objective, something that is stable, something that uh, we can rely upon. And we thank you most of all that you revealed yourself to us through your word. And I uh, pray that we can learn to love it. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.